This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. Support for this podcast and the following messages come from our friends at the Paul Mueller Company and Hopsteiner. Please thank them. This podcast wouldn't be possible without their generous support. Paul Mueller Company has been manufacturing quality brewing equipment since 1964. Our innovative design and engineering will save you time, labor, and ingredients, sending money back to your bottom line. Learn more about our new mobile hop module at paulmuller.com. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. classic definition no longer is completely valid in North America. And and why? It's because we started breeding a new version of Turo in North America, and it's fairly recent. It's only since the 70s. And we've moved away from the classic definition of, uh, of Turo barley. It doesn't really apply. This week on the show... Fan favorite Joe Hertrick explains why most of us are brewing with two-row barley that was designed for adjunct brewers. The content is awesome, but it's pretty long, so I've chopped it up into multiple parts. First, you'll hear Joe introduce the subject, then the rest of part one is a separate segment on the history of barley in North America. In part two, Joe explains exactly how North American two-row changed, why it happened, and who benefited from that evolution. Next week, you'll hear part three, why today's North American two-row is problematic for all malt brewers and what you can do about it. Joe, for years, we've all been taught that there are two different types of barley in North America, but you've observed some deviations that are potentially problematic for all malt brewers. I guess before we can talk about what's changed, we probably ought to start at the beginning, right? Yes, I think so, John, Um, because classic teaching has always been for brewers uh, the differences between two-row and six-row, and it's in uh, literature explanation, and it's passed on from brewer to brewer. We've all learned that two-row has larger, more uniform kernels with higher extract potential, and that it's typically lower protein and lower in the malt elements that are derived from protein, such as soluble protein and enzymes and and the color potential for it. And we've also been taught that six row has more soluble protein and and enzyme, and it's really good for adjunct brewing. In fact, in some cases, it's just mandatory for adjunct brewing. And these six row elements simply derive from there's just more crowded, smaller kernels on the barley head. So the premise of this podcast is that, that the classic definition no longer is completely valid in North America. 
And and why? It's because we started breeding a new version of Turo in North America, and it's fairly recent. It's only since the 70s. And we've moved away from the classic definition of, uh, of Turo barley. It doesn't really apply in North America. So I thought it, w- it would have some value to, um, to go through this. Uh, I've I've been in brewing since 1965, so I watched this transition from historic varieties in the United States through the new um, bread in North America varieties. And also, um, I was fortunate enough to be a member of AMBA for three different companies uh, since its founding. So I was I was present and, and uh, looked at the approval processes of how we got here. And I will be the first to admit my, my view back of the approval processes now is, is with perfect 2020 hindsight. But I, think, I thought it would be valuable to document this as an exercise if no other goal than to let's make sure we teach new brewers these differences in barley varieties. Very good. Now, you mentioned that... Uh North breeding Turo uh, didn't really start at all in North America until the 70s. Why, why right. is that? I think it's because of low interest in Turo. You know, we were a, a six-row country from adaptation um, for 300, 350 years. As recently as the, the, the 50s and 60s, probably only 10% of the malt in the United States was two-row. So there wasn't that much interest. This is long before craft brewing. This is long before all malt brewing. Coming up. This is another myth about six-row, that it was in the U.S. and became popular only because of adjunct brewing. That's not true. We brewed for 250 years ale tradition before lager and before adjuncts with only six-row. All right, up next is that history segment, which I think is awesome. But feel free to skip to the next part if you're already a barley history expert. I think what I'll do is I'll touch on some history of of how we got to that start in 1972. Sounds good. Uh, First of all, the... um Let's let's hit some ancient barley um, uh, history. You know, um, barley is ancient, long, long standing of uh, tens of thousands of years. If it's not the first cereal cultivated, it's one of the first cereal cultivated. And its origins appear to be in um, what we now think of modern Syria, Israel, and Jordan. Uh, And at that time, both two-row and six-row were present. And it's really not even clear how how which one preceded the other. It's not really clear whether six row preceded two row or two row preceded six row back in this uh, ancient period. And it's interesting because we we run into the same problem that we run into when we try to search for the origins of beer. We have the same problem with barley because there were no written languages to about thirty five hundred pre. Uh, BC, and all this happening in barley, the cultivation of it at 8,000 BC, the the collection of wild barley in 19,000 BC, all this was going on well before there was any recorded history. And one point I'd make, it's a myth that six row is a modern invention just for um, for adjunct brewing. It's very ancient. And out there in the world, um, the germplasm collection that exists for barley now has about 4,300 varieties in it. About half of them are two-row and half of them are six-row. So it's been around for a long, long time. Uh, It had to be adapted, though, because its native and origins in the Middle East 
So with the knowledge of beer, when people moved, they took barley with them. They never left home without it. And and through the spread of civilization, uh, barley went everywhere and was adapted across the globe um, as, as they moved. And um, it's now actually considered the most widely adapted cereal in the world. Um, it's grown at elevation. It's grown up in the Arctic Circle. It's very drought tolerant. Every location that has a cultivated crop on the whole globe has barley. Um, it's a cool season crop, and it's adapted uh, differently in different places. So we know that it's not native to North America. It had to be brought here by settlers uh, and explorers. And we know that it didn't really get brought here for food. It got brought here for animal feed and for brewing. The um, The settlement of whether barley should be used for food or not was made in medieval times, long before the, anybody came to the United States or North America, uh, because the gluten, the, the elastic properties of wheat gluten were understood. And uh, people started baking and that became food and uh, barley was set aside and not really considered a food after that so the first barley that got here was brought by the spanish explorers into mexico central america and mexico and it migrated up to um, california that was a six row that was a six row that was sourced in morocco that was the it was very drought tolerant that's what was brought over by the spanish there was no mention of two row at all at that time and that actually is the california heritage barley for 300 years this six row sourced in morocco brought by the spanish was the principal barley uh, in California. Now, a little bit later, when the English and Dutch settlers came to the Mid-Atlantic, anywhere from Jamestown to Plymouth Rock, they brought both two rows and six rows. English two rows and Scottish six rows. Some Dutch barleys, uh, if you recall, in that period, there weren't really many German settlers at that time. It was mostly Dutch and English and um, some French further to the north. But in this particular case, um, in the Mid-Atlantic, the two-row adaptation was much better in Canada, but the two-row did not adapt well in the Mid-Atlantic. Joe, Scottish, do, you, do you know if, yeah. those were, um, if those were a mixture of both winter and spring uh, barleys, or, or were they primarily spring, or what? It'd be hard to tell, John, because right now, if you look at craft brewers in the United States, in, in, in my area here in Pennsylvania and Delaware, they're growing winter barleys. And you can grow, um, you can grow spring barleys with a winter habit by planting them by, by variety. So it's hard to tell um, whether they were. All I could tell you is they were not named. It was, it was not common to name varieties. It was, they were just unnamed land races that came from different regions. And I, couldn't, I, I wouldn't know. I do know now that, that this climate does support winter barley now. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know what happened at that period. Okay. Um, I talked to a, a Penn State agronomist recently about this climate and the fact that barley didn't adapt that well here, and it was interesting. She described what our climate is around here as persistent humidity. So <laughs> that doesn't sound very comfortable. But it tells it tells you about barley. Barley's a cool season crop. It can tolerate humidity, but not humidity plus heat, and it can tolerate heat but not heat plus humidity. So it didn't do well. And, uh, you know, so we, we uh, uh, went through a long period um, of 
of uh, starting out with six rows only. I think probably one of the other thing we always should think about is there were less German settlers then, and there were not lager beers yet either. So, um, but, you know, it, it, we have always had some two-row around, um, but as barley started to expand with the people going west, uh, Buffalo was a malting and milling center, um, and it was based on the completion of the Erie Canal. Prior to that time, you could just all you could do is get barley close by to your areas of uh, of civilization. But now with the Erie Canal, you could take barley from the west, and some and and some two-row used to come from Canada to uh, to the west. So there's always some two-row around. There's also um, evidence there's a good account in the history of the paps brewing company where they were tested german brewers there by the end of the 1800s they were still trying to find two rows that would grow in wisconsin and and now you could see uh, varieties were being named and this account says they're looking for a chevalier type they were looking and they tested they gave they, they funded all the seed and all the farmers production of it of things like chevalier and primus and princess and spanels um, and only spanels did did well but this all went on between 1905 and 1912 also in 1908 the first widespread introduction of a two-row to the United States happened, and it happened in California, and it was the introduction of the two-row variety Hanchen, which was a selection. There was no breeding then. It was a selection from Moravian Hana, uh, and uh, it was made, and it became very successful, and then that became the, the standard uh, uh, barley in California from then. It's the first successful expansion of Turo. But, you know, you always wonder if things would have been different because remember these dates, all the initiatives were shut down by prohibition. So uh, there's no mention at PAPS that they tried to restart looking for Turo after prohibition. Um, and everything had a big setback there. Um, now, prior to that, uh, there were, there was more, there was more, uh, the lager production started at 1840. Adjunct production started about 1870. And I'd point out here that this is another myth about six row, that it was in the U.S. and became popular only because of adjunct brewing. That's not true. We brewed for 250 years ale tradition before lager and before adjuncts with only six row. So, you know, we came back from prohibition. Um, I always looked at there was still virtually no two rows in the United States, John. And I, I looked to, I looked to the practical brewer. Uh, a lot of people are, are familiar with the current practical brewer, but I have here on my desk, I have the 1946 first edition practical brewer. Nice. And it and it has and it describes small. I always I always like to look in these books because they describe exactly what went on by the knowledge and voice of the time. It's not somebody's modern um, research and interpretation of what went on. So in this 1946 version, uh, they they, they asked the question: What types of malt are used for brewing in the United States? And they describe. The most commonly used malt is made from six-row Manchuria-type barley grown in the north-central states. Lesser-used types are made from six-row Mediterranean barley, that's still that barley from Morocco, and two-row types grown in the western states, and they describe it as lesser-used. And then in another page, they describe the... Um, the two-row varieties, and they describe them as Hanchen and Hana 
grown in Oregon, California, Washington, and Montana. And they're grown on limiting acreage in the Western states for special markets. So we really were still a six row country up until the, this was written in 46, up through after prohibition and into the 50s before brewing really started to expand in the U.S. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I don't want to take up all your time with some brewing history, but it's very interesting. I always associated the expansion of Turo that started into the 50s and 60s associated with the creation of brewing networks. Up until 1950 or so, all the large brewers operated from a central location and shipped their beer. And the largest breweries in that time, uh, this, is from, this is from the documents of 1949, the largest brewery in the United States was Schlitz, followed by Anheuser-Busch, followed by Ballantyne, Pabst, Falstaff, and Schaefer. And just as relative size, the largest brewery in the United States, Schlitz, wasn't making 5 million barrels. And that's number six brewery, Schaefer, was making about two million barrels. But all of them were working in a central location. Now, things changed in 1950. The big Midwestern breweries, Schlitz, Pabst, um, Anheuser-Busch, all did the same thing. They established a brewery in Los Angeles, and they established a brewery in New York and, and, um, and Newark. And I think that's where they got more of their interest. The, the population was expanding in the West. They wanted to make their their beers with a common malt blend. And they were introduced to a lot more Turo in the West. And they didn't want the difference in their beer made with Turo in the West and six row in the Midwest. And they started to, um, they started to uh, incorporate a common blend across the country. And Turo started to expand then. Uh, some two-row usage. I know I, I, this is supported by, I worked for Anheuser-Busch, and in the Anheuser-Busch archives, the first two-row that was in an Anheuser-Busch malt blend was 1950. So that's why I'm thinking this, this, is, uh, this was going. So, you know, then we have to go into this, this really uh, important step of what this podcast is about, and that's the start of, of brewing um, the um, uh, brewing breeding new two row varieties. The prior to this, uh, during the fifties, more two rows were brought from Europe. Um, brewery uh, malts like uh, Ferlbecks and Betzes and um, Purilin became common. And in 1972, just prior to the breeding introduction, and it would have been Clogus was the first one. I think we were at about 15% two-row usage in the United States, and Hanschen and Pirolin and Betzes were dominant. They were all originally sourced in Europe and were in U.S. agriculture. Now, crossing of barley started a little sooner than this. We just didn't have a need for it in, in the United States. Uh, the actual technology of crossing for crop improvement started in the UK in about 1880 or 1890. And then in the U.S., in North America, uh, six-row breeding started about the 20s. But the very first two-row introduction in the United States that was expanded and uh, doing well was Clogus. And was introduced in, 17, in 1972 uh, from the USDA in Abertine. And that was rapidly followed by Harrington in 1981. And then a gap till Metcalf introduced uh uh, and Cope in 1997, and Copeland in 1999, 
And now, clog, and after Clogus was introduced out of Idaho, those next introductions were all from Canada. And then uh, Hockett, which came from uh, Montana State in 2008. Um, and this, uh, this is um, the sequence of the ones that have become dominant now. Now, I have to, I have to mention that these are the dominant, uh, easily obtainable commercial varieties. Uh, there's a lot of other varieties. Uh, Anheuser-Busch and Molson Coors run very um, robust breeding programs, and they breed um, barleys for their own interest. And you'll see plenty on the crop reports of, of varieties like uh, Voyager and Conrad and Murrett and um, Moravian. And the uh, and BC100, which is a Coors variety that is a Moravian type, but it was named for Bill Coors's centennial birthday. Um, they breed these varieties for their interest. So there's a lot of Turo that's used there that comes out of their breeding program. And I would say if you look at the parentage of Clogus and Harrington, the way breeding works, there was lots of Betzes in the parentage of those two. Um, but that seemed to be those traits were lost after Harrington. We seem to have left the European traits uh, behind. And this is important because while we were doing this, the uh, European um, concepts of barley did not change at all. So today, outside of the AB and Molson, Copeland and Metcalf and Hockett uh, dominate today uh, in this and we, we need to we need to talk about exactly how did the breeding um, of these uh, change. I want to mention one other thing though, and this is not talked about very much. Beyond the agronomic improvement of these, these new introductions in the malting industry ended three day steeping and ended five day germination. Uh, the European varieties were not easy to malt, and malt plants had to be built with enough equipment to steep for three days and germinate for five days. This isn't talked about much, but this really changed the malting industry uh, to their benefit to have uh, less equipment and um, uh, easier construction for a more streamlined process because malt plants built after the middle 80s into the 90s, they're not built. They're built just for two-day steeping and four-day germination. So was the was the primary driver for breeding those varieties, like you said, the, the, the changes to the malting process, or was it primarily for agronomics? It was always agronomics. This That was a benefit that was gained and known after the fact. So more of a side effect, okay. Yes, it is. Although I would tell you, when we talk about uh, breeding guidelines and approval processes. The AMBA, because it's a combination of monsters and brewers, the AMBA approval or the AMBA guidelines always say that the new variety must malt uh, must malt in four days, must malt in four days germination. Hmm. So that's actually a standard for acceptance, and that was probably uh, that's the monsters' input into it. You know, don't get me a variety that the brewers like that malts in six days. Right. Uh, so so. But but primarily, and I, and I have a, I have a few notes on um, uh, on um, who gained and who lost in this process. Um, but it's always the farmer. I mean, most of this funding is done in. Uh, although AMBA supports it, most of it's done at the fundamental level in the state um, land grant universities, and their whole purpose is to support agriculture. And the first priority is always agricultural improvement, crop improvement, and then we as monsters and brewers get to look at this 
um, get to look at this change as we screen the varieties later. We shouldn't have any misconception that we participate in the breeding process. We participate only in we get to screen the results of uh, the agronomic improvement to see its suitability for malting and brewing later. Yeah, we had, we just had Pat Hayes on the show a few weeks back, yeah. and uh, yeah. um, that's that's a great episode for anybody who wants to really learn more about that breeding process. Oh, great, great. Stay tuned for part two, where Joe explains how North American two-row changed, why it happened, and who benefited from that evolution. <laughs>